Matthew chapter 4, verse 17 is our passage on which the sermon is based, where we read verse 17. Uh, From that time on, that is from the time when Jesus had moved up to Galilee, uh, uh, right after his temptation, from that time on, Jesus began to preach this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Uh, According to John's gospel, these two brothers had already been following Jesus for about a year's time, but apparently they had returned to their normal work as fishermen. Jesus provocatively says to them in verse 19, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region around across the Jordan followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I think I've told you this story before, but um, the little I know about my own family's genealogical tree was done by, uh, research was conducted by my uncle a few years ago before he he died. Uh, His research turned up no luminary figures (laughs) in our history. We are Scotch-Irish. I think the original name was probably McHaney, and then they dropped the Mick. Poor sharecropper farmers in Arkansas and Texas Unfortunately, I have no great civil or revolutionary war generals or officers in my family tree, no English nobility, and, um, and none of that would deter me from stepping in a time machine and going back and seeing my ancestors. Um, haven't we all dreamed about that before? Like, how fascinating would it be to be able to go back five, six, seven, ten, fourteen generations and, and meet them. Like see one day in their life. Uh, watch them for a week. Uh, study their facial features and see, is there anything four centuries ago about them that looks like me? Um, you know, there's a, this is amazing, but there is a man or woman in human history, three years, 3,000 years ago, in the middle of the Bronze Age, and you owe your present heartbeat and your breathing and your, your present conscious, sentient existence, you owe to some guy and gal 3,000 years ago, an actual person. And that is that's amazing. I'm really tempted to take one of those blood DNA tests to be able to trace and see you know, where exactly I come from. What's that? Don't do it. (laughs) Is it a bad idea? More important, though, than our physical lineage, all of us have a spiritual genealogical tree. 
And as much as I would like to see my physical ancestors, I'd be far more interested to see my spiritual fathers and mothers in the faith. Like, how did they pass the faith on from them to the next person? How did it go uh, to someone else? Uh, How is it that I'm standing here? And I can tell you what my mom and dad taught me, and I can tell you what my mom and dad's dad taught me, but, but 10 centuries ago, where was my spiritual DNA there? Um, I guess we know where the beginning of the tree starts. It's right, it's right here in Matthew chapter 4. Our spiritual genealogical tree begins in the selecting of these 12 men who were fishers of men. These 12 men who proclaimed the gospel, and in doing so, they caught fish, who then went on to become fishermen and caught more fish. So really, I don't know if you ever thought about it as you're reading through the gospels, but this is where, this is where your tree starts. Again, to press into that a little further. So really, think back to your tree. Um, there would be some very gradual developments of the tree. Uh, This branch might just be a peasant in the fourth century who taught her kids the faith, who then taught their... We would have that kind of normal progression. And then we would have some meteoric uh, points within the genealogical tree, like Augustine uh, or Martin Luther. I mean, you would have these huge branches coming off of them. And then you would have not only individual persons, but I think you would have entire churches, like our whole churches are in our genealogical tree because it takes a church, it takes a community to cultivate a, a real Christian. And I've got to think that one of the coolest things that will happen to us in heaven is we will be able to see this. There probably are scrolls in heaven that we are going to see that trace out our spiritual genealogy. And we'll be able to, to meet all of those stupendous names that are on the list. I mean, that's how, how it differs from our physical genealogies. Is that they're dead, but, but our spiritual genealogy, those figures will live forever. You'll be able to walk up to your great, 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 great grandmother of the fifth century, your spiritual mother and father, and kiss them on the cheek. And as I said... In the scrolls will be entire churches because it is a whole community that cultivates faith. So before we move on from this, uh, it it does remind us that we've got to think beyond ourselves. There there is a spiritual genealogy that will flow from us. And it's, it's exciting to think about. Where will our church be in that genealogical list? Who will come after us? Um... Who will we become spiritual fathers and mothers to? It's very exciting to think that God could use our faltering efforts in evangelism to sprout an explosion of eternal life behind us. So, the title of today's sermon is Evangelism. And that is a word that has strongly negative connotations in our culture, even strongly negative connotations in the church probably is not the best uh, sermon title. You probably looked at, it, looked at it and you're like, oh no, not a sermon on evangelism. But evangelism is simply the Greek word uh, euangelion or evangelion, and it's the word for gospel. To evangelize is really to gospelize. It is to proclaim the good news that the Lord Jesus reigns. 
that he died on the cross for our sins. He was raised from the dead for our justification. He ascended into heaven and is at the right hand of the Father. And he is the Savior of all the nations. He is the world's true and rightful King. So for us, when we think about, if you put it not in terms of evangelism, but as in terms of gospelizing, as proclaiming the good news of this world's king, then you can see that it is not a marketing project that we're engaging in. We're not treating other people. We should not be treating other people as religious consumers who we have to kind of peddle our product to, hoping that they will buy. What we should think of our evangelistic efforts is merely we are witnesses to the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. That's how Paul and the apostles presented the gospel. They were witnesses of the good news. And so then we summon people into the kingdom, um, not by asking them to ask Jesus into their heart or by uh, casting a deciding vote for Jesus or by picking Jesus, but we summon them into this glorious new humanity that I just spoke about a minute ago, into the body of Christ. Um, And that is fantastic. Three things I want to give you that are needed for a healthy church to do this. Number one, we need to overcome our fears. All of us are fearful when it comes to evangelism. Uh, We're all worried about offending someone else. Uh, We're all worried of being shown to be completely inadequate. You know, what if they ask me a question I don't know how to answer? What if they're offended by what I say? Uh, What if they reject me? I I don't want my relationship to be harmed with them. And we, most of us, enter into any kind of gospelizing with the assumption that kind of the deck is stacked against us, that culture is against us, because you read it in the news and you see it on the message boards. This overarching uh, thought that they're going to be hostile to my faith, that I think is wrong. Christian Union, have you ever heard of them? They're a non-denominational college campus ministry located uh, at Ivy League campuses. So, you know, Dartmouth, Princeton, Yale, etc. From what I've heard, they're a very strong ministry, and I know they employ some pastors from our denomination. Well, this was a story that came out of one of their Christian, their local Christian Union chapters. They organized a lunchtime discussion on one of their campuses over the topic of around the topic of, does God hate women? And they brought a female speaker in who, uh, for about 20 minutes over lunch, just talked about the theology of Imago Dei and the the absolute value and dignity of every human being, um, how much God loves women, and yet how men and women have uh, complementary but different different strengths and weaknesses and roles. And um, so she talks about that for 20 minutes, and at the end of that, they opened it up for questions. At that point, the president of the Atheists and Secular Humanist Society stood up and he took the microphone and he began to interrogate her. The subjects veered from uh, slaves to homosexuality to hell to Old Testament war to transphobia, question after question followed by a haranguing monologue. And this went on for about 15 minutes until they ran out of their time. Uh, In the session, one of the Christian Union students had to kind of stand up, cut the speaker off, and sheepishly close the meeting. Well, here's what one of their staff members wrote afterwards. As we we exhaled and began to let our shoulders descend from around our ears, (laughs) 
Uh, I turned to my neighbor, Mark, a 19-year-old economics student, and asked him, what did you make of that? Mark was quiet for a bit, and then he said, oh, I wasn't listening to that guy. It's just my grandfather died last month, and I've just been wondering what it's all about. What do you reckon? He said that, and we were off. We opened a copy of John's Gospel, and we spoke for a good hour rooted to those plastic seats, still holding our paper plates of food in our laps, talking all the while of Jesus. As we opened up to John chapter 1, I glanced around the room. Half a dozen similar conversations were happening around me. Engaged inquirers were talking to Christian students and really listening to gospel truths. As a result of our meeting, most people took uh, free copies of the Gospel of John that we handed out. Many, including Mark, returned that night. In fact, Mark heard the gospel and he believed. But ever since that moment, my motto, my takeaway from that experience has, has been this. The guy with the mic does not speak for the room. The guy with the mic does not speak for the room. You, it, this anecdote is also a parable. The guy with the mic is anyone who's loud, anyone who has a platform, be it a talk show host, a media commentator, a columnist, a celebrity, even the comments that show up on your Facebook timeline, those that are loud and shrill and hostile to the faith, we imagine that they're representative. But what does their amplified opinion have to do with your neighbor? That amplified voice might despise Christianity, but your neighbor just lost a loved one. They're wondering what it's all about. Maybe they'd even be open to looking at the Bible with you, so why not turn to them and ask? See, the idea that the majority of people in our culture are hostile to the Christian faith and message is actually false. The majority of the research out there shows that they're not hostile, they're just indifferent. Most people, especially in Boise and Meridian, Idaho, are just living comfortable lives and they don't feel like they need God and they're fairly indifferent to what it is that you believe, but they're willing to have a conversation. They're willing in the course of a relationship to, uh, to talk more with you. They're certainly willing to share a meal with you. You know, we need to be eating meals with people who are not yet Christians. Over and over again, God's word testifies to the goodness of eating together and the power of genuine hospitality. Uh, I say to you, church, good food, good drink, good company, and good conversations, conversations that center around our common humanity are great gateways to share the good news of Jesus Christ. So, yeah, we're all afraid to go into evangelism, but, but do not fear. The Lord is with you. I mean, he even says that when we are inadequate and we feel so weak, it is through our weakness that his strength is made perfect. Um, but don't go in thinking that they're so hostile because I, I think you discover they're really not. So that's number one. Number two, we definitely need a more passionate heart when it comes to gospelizing. And I point the finger right at myself. Um, Nabil Qureshi, I think I'm pronouncing his name right, was a Christian convert from Islam to Christianity. He has written several books. He actually died, I think, this, this year as a result of a long battle with cancer. Uh, but Nabil, the book that he's most famous for is the one, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Anybody read that one? 
And uh, I think it was in that book. He's written two or three, but I think it was in that book. I forgot to pull my copy off the shelf. The dedication of that book is for his sister, who has not yet put her faith in Jesus. And the dedication reads, quote, I am begging God for the day that we can worship him together. In that simple dedication, you hear a man's passionate heart for someone else. And, you know, we hear that same kind of love as we read Paul's letter to the church in Rome. In Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, uh, let me read it to you. 9-1, I am speaking the truth in Christ that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who have not yet believed in Jesus. They are Israelites, and to them belong, and then he outlines all the privileges of being a Jew. The adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. So what is Paul saying there at the beginning of Romans 9? He's saying that I would willing to be forever cursed and cut off from Christ if it meant that my, my friends would be saved. And who has, who among us has that kind of passionate desire for others? I know that your pastor doesn't. Um, and I, I think it's, I mean, who of us has it, right? In mentioning it, I'm not, it's not a guilt trip in saying you need to be evangelizing more. I see it as an opportunity for us to pray for this kind of heart, a heart that that is that passionately desires our neighbors and our friends to, to meet this king. Um, and of course, Paul's vision of it was, was not, just for, not just because he loved people individually, but he truly believed, and this is what the whole book of Romans is about, is how the ingathering of the church, Jew and Gentile alike, is the manifestation of the power, wisdom, and glory of God. He believed that when uh, lost people were saved. There was no better picture of the glory of God on earth than, it, than there was in the body of Christ. And so that was one of the reasons why he was so passionate for evangelism to happen. So we need more passionate hearts, number two. And then finally, number three, we need to be available. Let me conclude with this image. The nets that Peter uh, James Andrew and John used here fishing on the Sea of Galilee were about 20, I think it's 20 feet in diameter. And they had weights attached to the perimeter of those nets so that you would you'd throw it out sort of like you would throw a frisbee. It would spread out on the water. It would sink with the weights around the outside and it would envelop fish that way. And then you would pull them in. Um, is their method of fishing in Matthew chapter 4 telling us Anything about the way we should do our evangelism? No. <laughs> this metaphor of going out and fishing for people, can that metaphor be kind of abused and misunderstood? Yes, because people are not fish and people are not targets. 
Um, we have to remember that w- the reason Jesus said this is it was a provocative way to call these men out of the life they were living into this new life. We don't want to go out into the world thinking that non-Christians are targets who we have to haul in. I, but it is the kind of thing that Jesus would say provocatively by the power of the Holy Spirit to grab another person's attention. Here's the thing, friends. We don't have to have the perfect words when we do evangelism. The Spirit will lead us to those words. What we need to do is make ourselves available to God. What you will find is when you pray and make yourself available and say, Lord, I, I am ready and willing to serve as a witness of the gospel today. When you pray that, you'll find opportunities sprouting up all the time. <laughs> And when you find yourself praying for a friend or a loved one, praying that they would come to know Christ, uh, the more you pray for a neighbor, the more your own soul will feel drawn to them, the more your heart will expand in love for them, and you'll find new ways and opportunities to demonstrate that love to them. And then the old adage is is 100% true, that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Uh, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I know that sounds trite, but it's real. People can tell if you're trying to sell them something. They can tell if you are trying to hold them in. And they can also tell if you just genuinely care and love, love them. So keep all these things in mind. I pray that God would make us a healthier church that gospelizes Um, I want you to be encouraged because our spiritual genealogical tree is going to extend beyond us into the future by God's grace. Imagine it. Hallelujah. Truly, friends, imagine what what could come after you, uh, what God can make after you and after this church. To whom will we, we become spiritual fathers and mothers? To whom will we bring the gift of eternal life? That is the outstanding possibility that awaits us this week. As Jesus said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Amen.